I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Love Letters is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Men that I've dated in the past told me that I wasn't worthy to get married. And they never saw me getting married. I even had one person tell me, he was like, if you ever want to see yourself married, you're just going to have to date a woman because the things that you're looking for, no man is going to want to give you. And I'm like, I just want somebody to respect me. Why is that so much to ask? Why is that so much to ask? From the Boston Globe and PRX, this is Love Letters. I'm Meredith Goldstein. One of my favorite things about hearing all these love and relationship stories is that they don't always turn out the way you think. Many of us have these clear expectations for how our romantic lives are going to go. We envision ourselves with a certain kind of partner. We imagine a certain kind of relationship. Life will be like this. But as we heard from Megan a few episodes ago, life often laughs at our plans. It's all about adjustment and adaptation, and allowing ourselves permission to change course. Today's story is about a woman who found a new beginning by doing that very thing. She reframed her sense of self and shifted what she was looking for in a partner. The end result? She's built a life she never dreamed she'd have. My name is Nicole M. Young. I am 41 years old. I live in Windsor, Connecticut. I work in the nonprofit industry. I'm a doctoral student, and I am also a poet and playwright and events producer. I first encountered Nicole a few years ago when she reached out over Instagram and email. She was actually a fan of this podcast, and then I became a fan of the writing she was doing about her romantic life and its shortcomings. She was collecting material for a book and writing poetry. In the poems that I've written, it's just really interesting to see how not only is it about dating, but how much of it is about how I changed myself in order to be perceived as worthy to to date someone or to be attractive to someone. One of the poems I wrote talked about trying to dress a certain way, trying to lose a lot of weight, trying to be more, you know, the feminine that somebody wanted, and it just, you know, didn't work. Let me back up and set the scene a little bit. Nicole is originally from Detroit. When she moves to Western Massachusetts in 2007, she tries online dating, but doesn't have much luck. 
it was just the constant back and forth, back and forth, but nothing ever moved to an in-person date. I was on a completely dry spell, not even like on purpose. Like I didn't go out on dates, I didn't sleep with anyone, nothing for about like three and a half years. Nicole says she's always identified as bisexual, but at this point in her life, she's looking to date cisgender straight men. She finally meets someone around 2011, but not on a dating app. We actually met in the traditional way. We were both graduate students at UMass at the time, and we met because we were on the same bus route. This person was always at my house every single day, all day, ate my food. We shared a car. We shared friend circles and all of that. Over time, Nicole starts broaching the question, why don't we just move in together? Her partner says he'll consider it, but he makes no commitment. About three years into the relationship, Nicole asks again. I said, hey, have you, you know, thought about us living together? I remember the moment we were sitting on the couch in my living room. These were his exact words. I actually don't want anything permanent with you ever. I don't want to be with you anymore. And I'm like, what? And he goes into this long, like, it sounded like he prepared this award-winning speech, this long, you know, he wrote, sounded like he wrote it out and scripted it and everything. He was like, actually, I've never been attracted to you. It was just all these bombs, drop, drop, drop. I'm like, wow, you have the guts to say all of those things. So I'm like, so why were you with me for three years? Why did we meet each other's friends? Why did we get to know each other's families? We traveled together. Everyone knew us as that couple. This is a shocking conversation for Nicole. She is pretty blindsided by it. But not long after, Nicole's mother dies unexpectedly and her ex reappears. Actually, he came to my house. I was leaving to go somewhere. He was standing in my driveway just sobbing. And I'm like, can I help you? And he was like, I heard your mom died and I want to be here for you. La, la, la. I'm like, I'm getting ready to go back to Detroit to bury my mom. I don't have time to deal with all this drama. After nearly a month in Detroit with her family, Nicole returns to Massachusetts. She and her ex begin this years-long, fairly messy period of Friends with Benefits, she dates some other people, too. Eventually, in 2018, she breaks things off with her ex entirely, after six years of being together in some fashion. He was one of the many men that have told me I was not never worthy to get married. And so I keep having this repeat dream where I run into him somewhere in public, and I show him my engagement ring, I tell him that I'm getting married, and he was like, oh, really, that's, wow, that's not really, you know, are you sure you're getting married I think you're lying to me. And yeah, so this relationship, even though it was very toxic, I hate to say it, but it's also really important. And I hate that it still takes up so much space in my life. At various points in her dating life, Nicole was open to many different experiences. She tried polyamory for a time, she experimented with BDSM. After her long relationship ends, Nicole decides to try something she hasn't done before. One of my really, really good friends was like, Nicole, you've, you know, been physically attracted to women in the past. You've made out with women, but you've never really 
like set up your online dating profiles to look for women. So I decided to finally do that. It's 2019. She goes on a date with a woman she meets online. There's no romantic spark, Nicole says, but the two of them become good friends. She returns to OkCupid and receives a message from a suitor we'll call Hunter. I remember on a Saturday, he messaged me and was like, hi, your profile looks really interesting. You seem great. Let's talk. Okay. So I go to his profile and at the time he was still identifying as gender non-binary and um, assigned female at birth. And I was very attracted, like very attracted to his pictures and all that stuff. And I was like, okay, I'll give this a try. They start communicating. Hunter is pushing for them to meet in person. He works close to where I live. So that Sunday, he was like, I got off work. I really, I really want to meet you because you seem really interesting and really, really cool. And I was preparing to go to a going away party. So he got off work at three. I had to be at a going away party at four. And the going away party was a half hour away from where we were to meet up. So he's like, let's just, I'm here, let's meet up. And I'm like, this is going to be the quickest date I have ever had, but okay. They make plans to meet at a Barnes & Noble. We meet up for coffee, and I told him the minute I had my phone sitting there because I was arranging a carpool, and I said, the minute my phone rings, I have to leave. So this date was 15 minutes, and the date was, it felt like an interview because it was just a series of getting to know you questions and all that stuff. And given that him and I have a lot of loss in common. Both of his parents have passed. Sister has passed. Both my parents have passed. So we spent the first day talking about death. For, wait, 15 minutes and all about death? Yep. <laughs> the first day we talked about death and I was just like, okay. Then you're like, I got to go to the party. There's a significant height difference. I'm 5'9", he's 5'2". Well, actually, on his dating profile, he said he was 5'3". So when I walked into the Barnes & Noble, I saw, and he stood up and I was like, you come to boob level. I remember the moment when I was like, maybe I might be physically attracted to him. And that was big for me because I typically, in the past wasn't necessarily physically attracted to the people that I went out with. I always was this person of, I will give them a chance. Whereas with him, I was actually physically attracted to him. Very Like dur- during the first date? Yes. Very sexy. He came in on his motorcycle. He had on leather. And yeah. So he. I remember he walked me to my car because I, I was trying to rush out. And he was like, let me walk you to your car. And I was like, I don't know. I got to go. He was like, no, let me just walk you to your car. Okay, so then he walks me to my car, gives me a hug, which that was a plus for him because most, and I have stories of creepy first dates. They want to make out with me and all this stuff in the car. And then, and I'm like, whoa. So he just gave me an appropriate hug and I watched him go to his motorcycle and pull off. And I was like, oh, he's kind of sexy. I think I can do this. Nicole leaves the date feeling pretty optimistic, but still, it was only 15 minutes. Plus, there are some big questions. I was talking to a bunch of my friends. I was talking to my therapist. And I was like, I don't know. 
like, I think I feel this guy, but I'm not really sure. Because also, too, I wanted to mention that he was in the process of separating and divorcing from his then spouse. So, and he also said that he, they were polyamorous at the time, but still wasn't really clear about where, you know, things were and how things were shifting in his family life. And so I wasn't really sure, like, what to expect. They meet for a second date. First, it's lunch at a Thai place in Northampton, a small city in western Massachusetts. Then they walk around a little and end up at a coffee shop where they talk for another hour and a half. And I remember the moment he went to the bathroom and I was like, I think I really like him. I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna say something. Nicole, who's parked pretty close by, offers to drive him to his motorcycle. We park my car next to where his motorcycle's parked. And I said, I am really attracted to you, but I don't know what to do with this because even though he was, you know, he had identified differently than the gender he was assigned. I was like, even though I'm, you know, bisexual and I've been attracted to women, I've never, you know, been with anyone who I don't know what to do with people who have similar parts. And he thought it was really funny. And then he was getting ready to leave. And then he kissed me and it was such a great first kiss. I remember him leaving. I froze in the car and I was like, I don't know what to do right now. Where am I? So I call the friend who said that I needed to explore, you know, dating people outside of the gender norms and blah, blah, blah. And she was so happy for me. She was like cheering over the, I had her on Bluetooth on my, in my car, cheering and throwing confetti. And she's like, yeah, you can finally embrace your queer identity. It is a big moment for Nicole. It's also a big moment for Hunter, who's about to embark on his own life-changing journey. Their story continues after a short break. Okay, we're back. So, to recap... Date number one between Nicole and Hunter is a 15-minute discussion at a Barnes & Noble about death. Date number two is Thai food, coffee, and one hell of a first kiss. For date number three, they make plans to go out for ice cream. Instead, I'm at my house and I'm like, so, uh, yeah, can you come over instead of us meeting up for ice cream? So we ended up having sex for the first time that day as opposed to going out for ice cream. It was a very life-changing sexual experience. Like, I had so much fun the first time. I also didn't, even though this was my first time being with someone who was assigned female at birth, I felt freer for the first time. Because when I've slept with cisgendered men, there was always this play, this rule, this rule book of, you have to do this and this and this and this in this particular order. And whatever you want may not come in there. So a lot of times when I would have sex in the past with cis men, it would always be give them what they want and then, oh, if they're up for it, maybe they'll give you what you want too. Sometimes when Nicole and Hunter are on the phone in these early weeks together, they act like teenagers. When he told me that he loved me, we were on FaceTime. It was maybe like, I think it was maybe like the middle of the evening. And I was lying in bed because I was on FaceTime on my um, iPad. And he was like, you know what? I'm just going to say it. And he was like, I love you. And I was like, wait, what? I was like, Huh? And I was like, am I ready to say it yet? 
Nicole's friends joke with her about how early she and Hunter moved to I Love You. According to, like, the heteronormative playbook, this is way too soon. When I talked to my queer friends, they were like, yeah, y'all are in that lesbian relationship. Yeah, this is following the lesbian playbook. In the summer of 2019, Hunter leaves on a cross-country motorcycle trip. He's heading out west for a conference. The trip is significant for Hunter because he's decided that when he returns, he'll start the process of his gender transition. Soon after he gets back, in July 2019, he begins taking testosterone for the first time. I want to ask, like, at what point in the sort of early stages of your courtship did you A, know that his divorce was imminent, and B, that this transition was even going to happen? Like, when did it come up in conversation? I knew that he wanted to start the transition around the first date, but wasn't really sure when it was going to take place. And then the divorce, that took some time. So the divorce was in the workings for some time before he told me about it. So I think he told me about it after the second date. I think it was just to be sure that I was someone that that he could actively pursue. Because he's someone, even though... Here's the thing, though. Nicole is also seeing other people during her and Hunter's initial time together. So each of them has entanglements. Eventually, though, both Nicole and Hunter realize that they only want to be with each other. Right before the pandemic hits, in February of 2020, they take a major step. Nicole moves into Hunter's house in suburban Connecticut. So this is my first time ever living with a significant other. This is the first time a significant other wanted to build a life with me. So there's a lot of things that I'm learning and adapting to. Like, he always jokes. So when I go grocery shopping, I tend to go grocery shopping, like, every couple of days, and I buy small bags of things. And he's, like, because he's all he's been, like, was married for a long time, like, 13 years, hasn't lived by himself in a long time. He He's like, oh, isn't this cute? You shop like you're single. I'm adapting to sharing bills and expenses with someone. I'm adapting to asking for help, which has been really hard. Like today, we're talking on the phone and I'm like, I got to go grocery shopping and make dinner. And he's like, well, I can, you know, do this for you and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, no, I feel, I feel obligated to do. So also too, like sharing the burden with someone is very new for me. Sharing a household means caring for a bunch of pets. Hunter has three dogs, two cats, and a lizard when Nicole moves in. It means helping care for Hunter's daughter, who lives at the house part-time. It also means opening their home to Nicole's brother with special needs, for whom Nicole is the primary caregiver. He made a conscious effort. Like, I remember one of the first times the two of them hung out by themselves without me. And it was really special and was really sweet. It also helps that both my brother and his daughter have special needs, even though they're different. But the domestic responsibility that brings them especially close comes when Hunter begins the process of gender confirmation surgery, a series of procedures starting in early 2020. One of the things in terms of supporting someone through this transition is being very cognizant and knowing where is okay, like like sexually and romantically, where is it okay to touch? How do you treat things? What do you call things? So giving that person the autonomy to say, 
you can touch me here, but not touch me here. Can you refer to this as this and not, you know? So that was like one of the first things that happened. In terms of supporting through the surgeries, that was very intense because it wasn't like I was just taking care of him. I had to take care of the dogs and helping with his daughter and my brother. So there were other caregiver type responsibilities that happened. One of the things that kind of sucks is for the procedures that he needs, the doctors and surgeons that work on those procedures are very far away. So one of the things having to happen is, and this is my fight and not his, is negotiating time off at work. Like, that's been really hard. Nicole and Hunter have been talking about the future, how they might someday want to live in a different part of the country. Hunter would like to live somewhere where it's motorcycle riding weather all the time. But they both know there are considerations beyond just climate. We want to pass as this, like, heteronormative straight couple we still have to be cognizant of where we live. Like, we have to live someplace where he can get access to his testosterone without laws and things like that standing in the way. And so it's been an interesting journey in terms of how to support someone through this, if that makes sense at all. First, though, there's a wedding to have. Nicole and Hunter plan to marry in September of this year, near a beach in Norwalk, Connecticut. It's such an interesting path because it's sort of like in your openness to try different things, to try non-traditional relationships, to try really just openness to love in any form it can take. You wound up with like the most domestic, (laughs) like living in Connecticut with your soon to be (laughs) husband. Like I think about it and I'm like, wow, this looks pretty friggin' traditional. (laughs) It's true. I open myself up to many possibilities and I literally have this life that I never saw for myself. I am living in a really nice house in suburban Connecticut. I'm about to have a husband. I'm going to be hyphen. I'm changing my last name, but I'm hyphenating. I'm going to have a stepdaughter. I, we like, we have such a traditional front facing life and it's something that I never saw for myself. I actually went wedding dress shopping before the pandemic because we were planning to get married later that year. When I found my dress, I started crying. I was bawling because I was like, just this rush of emotion that I never, even though In the back of my mind, I've always wanted this life, but because people were telling me I wasn't deserving of this life, I never was transparent to people about wanting this life. But now, going about it in a very non-traditional way, I have this life. Thank you so much, Nicole, for telling your story. Yeah, thank you, Meredith, so much for having me. This was awesome.
Love Letters is a production of the Boston Globe and PRX. Today's episode was produced by Caitlin Harrop and Scott Hellman. Ned Porter does our audio mixing, sound design, and mastering. Devin Smith does our audience engagement. Love Letters illustrations by Ashanti Davis. Check them out on the Love Letters Instagram. Special thanks to Brian McGorry and Linda Henry. Our music is from APM. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We're online at loveletters.show. I also grew up in a naked household. Like, my parents would walk around butt naked all the time. And so... It's so weird. I grew up in a naked household, but I went fully the other way where, like, I'm oh, I'm basically an ever-nude, <laughs> but I definitely grew up in a naked household. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Thanks for listening.